You are listening to a message from Thrive Community Church, a church located in Southwest Florida. For more info, visit us at thrive-fl.org. Have you found a favorite yet? (laughs) One that um, you could uh, identify with? Is there one of the seven sins that you say to yourself, I can get rid of six, but oh, I need this one really. Or the worst trap is, do you say, I need to get rid of six, I need just one more time. How many cigarettes have I seen my dad put down when he was trying to quit smoking? How many habits, how many chocolate ice cream cones? How many trips to the computer for pornography? How many opportunities? Just one more time. Seven deadly sins. So I... uh, I'm going to try something new here today, and that is, uh, instead of the physical thing, I'm going to try to telepathically change a slide. Uh, Watch this. Oh, it worked. Okay, good. (laughs) That's hard to do. Yeah, I've been practicing that for a long time. Sloth! Sloth is my favorite. Not because I uh, want it to be, but because I think, by definition, sloth is that which absolutely invades me. Sloth is that which absolutely engulfs me and is, I would offer, a part of every other sin. John gave me sloth, and I thought, what is he trying to say to me? (laughs) All right, I I knew it was going to be interesting because I would have picked gluttony. Gluttony is a little easier to preach. I mean, I've been on cruise ships before. (laughs) I witnessed people who make a living out of that one, but sloth. So as I started to jump in and dive into sloth, just kind of a funny thing, I saw this and thought, oh, that's good. Anybody see the movie with their grandkids, Zootopia? Excuse me, how old do you think I am? Or young people? It's, uh, it's got a scene in it that's just hilarious that we couldn't bring it over for copyright reasons, but uh, it is, as you may recognize, it is a sloth. When I started to uh, search the scriptures and search online, I found uh, this uh, clip come up, but we can't use it for copyright reasons, but it's about the interaction between the rabbit who talks really, really fast and really, really wants results really, really quickly, and the... I was waiting for that to happen. <laughs> it's like, that's, that's me in East Texas. Um, to all of my, or any of my East Texas friends that are watching, uh, I love you. And uh, I arrived in Chicago. Uh, I, arrived, I grew up in Chicago, and I arrived in East Texas for my first call. And Chicagoans are used to talking pretty fast and getting things done, just spitting them out, and ready, ready to move on. But not in East Texas. I go pick up Ben Newcomb for lunch. Ben, I love you. And in the feed store. And the pace changed dramatically. I walk into that feed store and all of a sudden, time stood still. They were in no hurry. Doing all right? Doing all right. 
Can you just feel the angst build up inside of you? <laughs> is he going to ever move on? So this is sort of the most superficial understanding of sloth. It's a cute cartoon. It's an irritation. It's the desire to speak fast and get it for quicker results. And I think the desire to get quicker results and, and speak fast is getting fast, you know, getting more and more profound, right? I mean, uh, good night. We can get results and we want a faster phone. Because my phone is taking so much time. And I say to my mom, what do you mean it takes so much time? Well, you know, it's, I don't know. She doesn't know how to count nanoseconds, but she's telling me about nanoseconds. So we're, we're there. So let's go on something deeper. This is what really, we're getting a little bit deeper into this. This is what, well, do we, we went, went like this. Uh, John gave me sloth, and I just kind of went, oh, John, what? I said, John, what do you want me to do? What direction do you want me to head with, with sloth? And he said, I don't know, and I don't care. <laughs> I said, John, I know you guys, you've been through a lot lately. You've been having some, you know, real struggles and passing up your mom. I mean, I, I get that. I said, but give me some direction so I can bring to the congregation some some place to go, something to root it in and make sure I'm in line with the other six deadly sins that you've been preaching. And what did he say? I don't know. It's like a who's on first line, that kind of thing. So it really is at its essence, I don't know and I don't care. I don't, I don't want to know. Ignorance is bliss kind of phenomena. It's a little deeper into sloth. It's I don't know and I don't care. Now we're getting a little bit more into the integration of human nature. This is where I, I saw, that's where I kind of was led to thinking about I don't know, I don't care is, is a creed that I use when I started experiencing compassion fatigue. I mean, I want to help out, but it's like, oh my God. Where does it end? How do you stop? Where does the boundaries, how much energy? More and more of us are experiencing compassion fatigue because we see lots and lots of opportunities to serve, to give, to love. But even with the best of motivations, we still end up kind of with an I don't know, I don't care defense mechanism that keeps us at a distance. And that, it too, is sloth. Click. So the, there, there's a little bit of a lag. On, uh, we're working on that. So, these are two scriptures we're going to take a look at that's kind of built into what we're talking about. Paul wrote the Thessalonians twice. And one of the things that he discovered was that when he preaches grace, it's sort of like, oh, God's grace, I get it. I, don't, I can't do anything to win it. It's all God's, it's all God, it's not me. So I'm just going to chill. <laughs> so I'm going to do nothing but soak in grace as though it were rays of sunshine for somebody up north who's visiting us in January. Just going to soak it up and suck it in. And Paul basically says to the Thessalonians, no, that's being slothful. He says it like this. Paul writes to him and says, now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, huh, 
set aside rights, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Isn't that a turn, great turn of the phrase? For we hear that some of you among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. I know some of them. <laughs> we all do. So Paul is trying to separate out and understand that experiencing of grace and being a part of the body actually stimulates one to work and go the extra mile, not sit back and soak it in and suck it up like rays of sunshine on a winter day. I want to, there's a lot that the book of Proverbs has to say about sloth and slothiness and idleness. Uh, so I just picked one to kind of get a flavor for it and some comprehension. It's this one that's working better. Proverbs 24 says this, I passed by the field of a sluggard. Isn't that a great word? Sluggard. By the vineyard of a man lacking sense, and behold, it was overgrown with thorns, and the ground was covered with nettles, and its stone wall was broken down. Then I saw and considered it. I looked and received instruction. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. And poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. Such a great power. So that kind of captures a little sense. Uh, but let's go a little to the next slide and go a little deeper from there. So this is in my, uh, Bible, uh, uh, my Bible software called Logos, just a captured screen. And uh, if you want to know what those Hebrew words say, ask John. Uh, <laughs> he knows. Uh, I used to know. Uh, I didn't know. I don't think I ever knew it. So whatever those Hebrew words are, I want to give you a flavor for the synonyms and the context for which it appears in the Bible. Slack, loose, slackly, negligently, slackness, indolence, treacherous, fraud. Isn't that interesting? It gets translated sometimes as fraud. So to be slothful is to participate in a fraudulent activity. That's interesting, as well as deception. Upper right-hand corner, slowness, sluggishness makes sense, and extreme laziness. Some context. If you take a look at the New Testament, you can see that sloth has got more focused understanding and need Skeros, idle, lazy, lag, to hold back. I thought that's interesting. I don't know and I don't care. It's just to hold back. It's like God gives grace and gives power and gives strength, and then we sort of say, eh. So that's kind of the biblical context and the biblical words. Click. This is a self-portrait of me this afternoon. Yeah. So this is kind of, <laughs> that is like, like the epitome of slothiness. This dude can't even get up. It's like, oh my gosh. But these are the kind of images that kind of come up. They tend to be extremely lazy people. And so, but what I want to be able to do with the rest of this message is say, all right, it's not that this isn't true or accurate or, or defines the nature of sloth and his sin, but it's superficial. It's up here. It's really got its tentacles systemically in our bodies, our minds, our spirits. 
This of the seven sins I would offer to you is the most pervasive and universal. And perhaps rooted in many of the other sins itself. And no, Mary Louise won't let me eat on the furniture like that. But um, this serves as a wonderful metaphor for a sense of slothiness that we do in many other areas of our life. Let's take a look. That's not a blank screen, that's a black screen. Because um, that's the way things started. As in the beginning, there was darkness and void. So to kind of take Genesis chapter 1 and kind of mix it together with what I know a scientific assessment of the nature of darkness. What is the nature of darkness? It cannot be defined as the presence of anything. The nature of darkness is only the absence of light. So, which is, now look at the spiritual implications of that, the physics implications of that, the universal implications of that, the astronomical implications of that. Darkness can't win. All it is is the absence of light. John chapter 1, verse 1 is just phenomenal to me. I just like, every, I, I read that uh, so frequently, I'm just stunned by it. Uh, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In the beginning, all things came through Him, there was nothing came from Him. All of that is to say that God introduced light and presence and order, and everything came from that. But this is more like the nature of sloth. It's a little bit harder to define and understand because it is the absence of light. It is the absence of caring. It is the absence of get up and go. It is the absence of heartfelt, compassionate movement. It is its absence. As such, it is difficult to spot. More difficult to spot an absence. Parkinson's disease is defined as the absence of dopamine production and very often missed in early diagnoses because there's no thing that appears. There's no tumor, there's no presence or anything which is obstructing in the brain. It is simply the absence of dopamine. And as such produces, left unchecked, its own disease, the characteristics and properties and issues. Absence kills. <laughs> now we're getting more profoundly into the nature of slothiness. This is what Genesis 3 says about this. Because you listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, this is the fall, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground from which, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now let me tell you the evolution of my understanding of this through 30-some years of ministry. When I started reading this and pre preaching it, I thought this is what I'm, what I'm reading is God telling this, is, telling, this is the curse I'm leaving with you. I've moved away from that now more to this element, or to this nature, God is telling Adam and Eve, look what you did. Because you sinned and turned away, 
because your own slothy behavior caused you to disobey and to walk away from me, now everything is falling apart. Look around you. God didn't do this to them. They did this to them. Isn't that classic? Blaming the victim is a whole phenomena found in uh, addicts' worlds all over the place when something goes horribly wrong and badly. They blame the victim, and that's kind of what we're going on here. God is saying, I didn't do this. I didn't curse you. This is where I've landed up. Because of your sin, everything is going down the tubes. Why? Because God has been removed from the center, and we have been, we've stepped in there, and systemically, everything went to hell in a handbasket. A cliche that I think applies. Or next. For the creation waits in longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility. Paul, hundreds of years later. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. In hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption. This is what one uh, um, version says, corruption. My favorite is bondage to decay. Change and decay in all around I see. What hymn was that from? I recognize it? Abide with me. Abide with me. I won't sing. I'm bonded. Bondage to corruption or decay and obtain the freedom of glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, we have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Paul is picking up the same theme thousands of years later, saying, because of sin, everything goes to hell in the handbasket. Everything goes south. Slothiness is not simply sitting on a couch eating chips instead of helping out, which is certainly a manifestation of it. It's much more profound than that. It's our not wanting to and our not caring to has affected creation. Next. The world of physics calls it entropy. It's the second, there's three, there's the second law of thermodynamics. In physics, entropy is the degree of disorder or randomness in the system. The second law of thermodynamics says that entropy always increases with time. Lack of order, predictability, gradual decline, and disorder. So what do you have to do to let uh, a, a marriage go to pot? Nothing. Nothing. That's exactly right. What do you have to do to let a friendship begin to deteriorate? You say it. Nothing. Nothing. What do you have to do to let your garden start producing thorns and thistles? Just do nothing. Just don't intervene at all. Stop writing, stop talking, stop investing, stop caring. What do we have to do to let the mission of God dwindle away on the planet Earth? Nothing. What's interesting is that this is physics. The second law of thermodynamics says that entropy always increases with time. Uh-oh. Scientists are telling us what we've known to be true with the, from the Bible, and that is, it just keeps getting worse. Oh boy. 
entropy. Sloth is everywhere, in everyone, and in everything all the time. So we've gone from a pretty sort of cute picture of a sloth, which, by the way, you know, to a phenomenal expression, everywhere, everyone, everything, all the time. It's having its influence, it's having its effect. We have a reflex, a systemic perception. We have a spirit that helps me understand why Paul told the Ephesians, we are born dead in our trespasses and sins. Because what can a dead man do? Nothing. I found an interesting quote from uh, Albert Einstein. It is the only physical theory of the universal content which I am convinced will never be overthrown. <laughs> One of the most brilliant men has figured out what the Bible's already been saying. The only physical theory of the universal content which I am convinced will never be overthrown. Einstein and scriptures are both saying you can't beat slothiness. It's everywhere all the time, in everyone. Lovely. Next. It has its various manifestations. The first slide, upper left-hand corner. Is it your left? Yeah, upper left. Yeah. Is aging. Some of us are taking that one kind of personally. <laughs> but the same is true for dieting, isn't it? That's why dieting books sell the most. We just stop the diet. That's why we can sell the same book later in another generation. Same thing with relationships. Kind of covered that already. That just do nothing and your marriage will begin to deteriorate. Just do nothing to fill your spirit and you will try to fill it with alcohol or drugs or any other things. I couldn't remember why I put the grandpa-looking character right there. <laughs> I think that's idleness of retirement. Oftentimes, retirement is viewed, at least in the United States, as kickback, layback time, not as opportunity to serve as another away time. And that one is just a picture of a woman who's just tired of being at work, a lot of at-home work. My point, it's everywhere all the time, in whatever circumstance we can discover. And it's taking us down. Yeah, Einstein said it, but the scriptures have been saying it since Genesis 3. <laughs> ay, ay, ay. Click. Click. There it is. That's why God doesn't want to improve your life. This is sort of a trick slide, isn't it? But he doesn't. He does not want to improve who you are because we've already destroyed who we are. He's not looking for improvement. This is one of the most common mistakes in our culture today. In a non-judgmental kind of culture, they want to say, oh, Jesus was a great teacher. The problem with identifying Jesus as a great teacher is, is it's partly true, but it is a really small piece of the pie of what Jesus does and who he is and how he serves and what he blesses. God doesn't want to improve your life. Look. He wants to kill it and make it new. 
Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. The sea doesn't mean it's a desert scape. This, this is the book of Revelation, full of um, symbolic imagery and, and uh, text. So you have to kind of interpret it with that symbolic nature in mind. No, no more sea. The sea is the place where sea monsters came, where waves beat over ships, and where people feared to go. Waves are where the nature of evil and content. And there was no more evil. There was no, no more of that. Notice that God is not trying to improve me. He wants me to die. You see, if he's trying to improve me, I can participate in that and we can kind of go along together. And I can evaluate whether or not he's teaching me the places I want, the things I want to learn and the places I want to go. But not so if he wants me to die. Trust me, Carl, just die. And I'll be there to rebirth you, to reborn you, to give you a new life. But what does it, by definition, have to happen? You've got to let go to make something new. My son Dave approached me when he was at Valparaiso University taking uh, a world religions course. And he kind of came to me with a bit of uh, an air like, I'm going to really study these things and see if Christianity is right. That's fine. <laughs> I said, that sounds good. And I, I think you should do that. And I think it would be a great course and we can discuss it as you want. But I want to give you a spoiler. Before you start the course, I want you to turn to the last chapter and you're going to find that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the most unique doctrine and teaching on the planet. Test me on this, Dave. Ask your professor. Every theology, ideology, and philosophy that you're going to read about teaches you how to get from A to B. Only Christianity says you can't get there from here. I'm going to come from B to A, pay the price it's going to take for your ticket, and bring you to B with me. See the way that works out? To bring you to B with me? I know, I forget. I, I liked it. They're not bad, right? There's more. Revelation 21, he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. <coughs> Trust me, God says. I'm not trying to improve your life. I'm trying to make a new you. That's how we have baptism. That's how we're going to have the Lord's Supper to continue to strengthen that. That's why we have eternal life. Check it out. He invites you to die to sloth and be reborn to live life. What's the opposite of slothiness? Living. Life. Both with capital L's. Whatever our circumstance, whatever our trials, whatever our encumbrances, whatever our peace of mind, know that we already have won. A lot of the verb tenses that talk about heaven being ours are already pre are in the present tense. It has already begun. C.S. Lewis uh, would unfold that in a book called The Great Divorce, where he makes this fantasy bus trip from hell to heaven from its outskirts by saying the people that were born in Christ have already begun to experience eternal life in his name. He invites you and me to die to sloth and be reborn to live life. That is in 
remembrance of our baptisms, to know that a new spirit has been placed inside of us. That is, to bring bread and wine as body and blood be through to Jesus Christ that stirs that spirit, that recognize that we die to self daily, regularly, as a means to practice, because there's going to come a time when dying to self will ultimately happen. Anybody here not going to die? Yeah, me neither. Dying to self is a preparation, an opportunity, a rehearsal to go on and continue to let go and let God. That is the opposite of slothiness. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all shall be made alive, Paul told the Corinthians. He says, 2 Corinthians, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. 600 years earlier than that, Ezekiel said, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. <coughs> Lastly, Paul would write it to Timothy. It's one of my favorite scriptures right here. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power, of love, and self-control. Yeah. <laughs> Paul steps up and says, that's who's living inside you. That, that ain't sloth. That's living life. It's knowing and caring. We do know and we do care because of Christ and in his name. Amen.